I'm Barbara Humpton, CEO of Siemens USA, and I'm an optimist. And if you come along with me on this journey, you're gonna see infrastructure in a whole new way as a tool for building a society that's more equitable, resilient, and sustainable. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, September 11th. Today's show is dedicated to the anniversary of the September 11th, 2001 attacks and how it's being marked in this unusual year. The coronavirus has reshaped countless American rituals, including 9-11 commemorations. Taliban prisoners who killed American troops are released to pave the way for peace talks in Afghanistan. And six 9-11 victims had birthdays that day. Today, each of them will get a single white rose. But first, the big idea. Consider this. There are 18-year-olds who will vote in this November's election who were not alive on September 11, 2001. They don't remember the raw pain and trauma and where they were that day as they watched the towers go down that pit in your stomach, that feeling of vulnerability, that sense that America's vacation from history was over. For that matter, we have soldiers in our military today who were also born after the attack that prompted our intervention where they serve. But the events of the day cast a very long shadow that has affected everyone, often in ways we forget or fail to fully appreciate. Joe Biden was on an Amtrak train that Tuesday morning when his wife Jill called to tell him about the attacks on the World Trade Center. And when he reached Washington, he grew frustrated that he couldn't get to the Senate floor for a speech because the U.S. Capitol had been evacuated. Hundreds of miles to the north and four miles from ground zero, Donald Trump was sitting in a tower bearing his name, watching CNBC, and preparing to call a local TV station to offer his own commentary including a lament that the stock market had been forced to close. 19 years later, Trump and Biden are their respective parties' presidential nominees, and both of them today will visit Shanksville, Pennsylvania, the place where United Flight 93 crashed into a grassy field. It will bring the two candidates to the same place on the same day, and it comes less than three weeks before they face off in their first debate. My colleague Matt Viser observes that the 9-11 attacks targeted the cities that molded these two men, Washington for Biden and New York for Trump. And it reinforced the clashing worldviews they now offer the American people. Biden's embrace of U.S. institutions and global alliances. Trump's distrust of foreigners and his insistence that America must go it alone. That divide is playing out amid another great national trauma, one Americans are handling in a very different way. If 9-11 prompted a rare moment of national unity with Republican and Democratic leaders embracing on the Senate floor, the current pandemic is yielding another bitter partisan debate over everything from death rates to who's at fault. The events, of course, are very different. One, a massacre by terrorists bent on humiliating America, and the other, a global pandemic that recognizes neither borders nor ideology. Nearly 3,000 people died on 9-11, and close to 190,000 Americans have lost their lives so far to COVID. In their Shanksville visits, Biden and Trump will appear on a field that memorializes the bravery and toughness of ordinary Americans. 
That day, a 32-year-old named Todd Beamer tried to place a call through an airphone and was routed to customer service. He told the operator that some of the passengers were planning to attack the hijackers and regain control of the aircraft after they had learned about what happened in New York and at the Pentagon. Todd's last words before the line went dead were, Are you ready? Okay, let's roll. That morning, Biden's daughter, Ashley, then a college student, called him and begged him to leave Washington. The senator instead marched to the Capitol, reaching the steps before a police officer stopped him and told him that a fourth plane, the plane that Todd and the others would eventually crash in Shanksville, was heading toward Washington, and some thought the Capitol. But if that moment in 2001 was about unity, it contained the seeds of our present era of division, at least when it comes to the two men facing off on November 3rd. For both Biden and Trump, the attacks did not so much transform their worldviews as solidify them. On 9-11, Trump was watching CNBC as it prepared to interview former General Electric CEO Jack Welsh when the network cut away to a scene of the first tower on fire. One of Trump's first reactions when the plane hit was to call a TV show to offer commentary. Later, he visited Ground Zero and cited the attacks to challenge immigration policies, religious tolerance, and the need for the very global alliances that Biden has spent decades embracing. Trump claimed that he saw the plane strike the second tower and that from his window, he observed the tragedy of people jumping from the buildings. These are claims fact-checkers have questioned. Trump also later said he watched on television as thousands of Muslims cheered in Jersey City, New Jersey, when the towers came down, an assertion that has been repeatedly debunked, but which the president has never backed away from. The most volatile foreign policy question after 9-11 was whether to launch a war in Iraq. Both Biden and Trump have significantly exaggerated their initial opposition to it in the years since. Biden and Trump have only hardened their divergent approaches in the years since the invasion of Iraq. For Trump, the attacks have fueled his skepticism of foreigners, led to Islamophobic reactions, and cemented a distrust of traditional alliances, whether NATO or, more recently, the World Health Organization. For Biden, the attack enhanced his faith in the importance of the Western alliance and triggered calls for bipartisan camaraderie and compromise. He still voices those calls. In fact, the floor speech that Biden planned to give in the Senate on 9-11 was about the importance of institutions like Congress and NATO as bulwarks against assaults on democracy. Biden wouldn't give the speech, but later that day, he made the same point as he talked to reporters outside the Capitol, where he said, quote, I refuse to be part of letting these bastards win. And that's the big idea. Here are three other stories to mark this somber anniversary. Number one, the 9-11 memorials have become a, a sad metaphor for how divided America has become in this period. In New York, the double beams of light that evoke the fallen Twin Towers were nearly canceled in the name of virus safety, but then an uproar restored the tribute. The fire department in New York has cited the virus in urging its members to skip observances of the attacks, which killed about 350 firefighters. Some victims' relatives told the Associated Press that 
they understand the ground zero observance had to change in a year when so much else has, but others feared the pandemic is making plain what they have feared was happening unspoken, that the commitment to never forget is fading. Jim Riches, who lost his son Jimmy, a firefighter, said it feels like another smack in the face to his son's memory. He's staying home this year for the first time for the anniversary because he has a pre-existing condition and doesn't want to risk getting the coronavirus. But he feels like others should have the option of reciting the names of the dead on the Memorial Plaza as they have on every other anniversary instead of just listening to a recording of the names. Memorial leaders said they wanted to avoid close contact among readers who are usually paired at the podium, so that's why they opted for the recording. The Flight 93 Memorial in Pennsylvania tightened its usual 90-minute ceremony by eliminating all the musical interludes. Victims' names will still be read there, but by one person instead of multiple family members. Military leaders will conduct the Pentagon ceremony without victims' families in attendance at all, and their loved ones' names will be recited by a recording rather than readers on site, as has been done in the past. Leaders of the 9-11 Memorial in New York said their plan for a no-reading ceremony will honor virus precautions and let families still come to visit Ground Zero. But a separate competing 9-11 memorial organization, the Stephen Stiller Tunnel to Towers Foundation, responded to that announcement by arranging its own simultaneous ceremony a few blocks from Ground Zero, saying that victims' relatives can come there to recite the names of their loved ones while keeping a safe distance. Number two, six Taliban prisoners accused of involvement in the killings of American, French, and Australian nationals were released on Thursday from Afghan custody and flown to Doha in Qatar, paving the way for formal peace talks between the Taliban and the Afghan government to begin in the coming days. My colleague Susanna George reported overnight from Kabul that three of these six prisoners are accused of involvement in what are known as insider attacks against U.S. troops. The assaults, conducted by Taliban infiltrators of the Afghan security forces, sowed deep distrust and undermined our military and training missions in country. The high-value prisoners will be placed under temporary house arrest. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is traveling to Doha for the talks with the Taliban. President Trump announced this during a news conference yesterday, adding that, this is a quote, we're getting along very, very well with the Taliban and very well with Afghanistan. These talks are a key foreign policy objective for the Trump administration as the president pushes to withdraw U.S. troops from the country before the election. Following the arrival of the prisoners in Doha, the Taliban announced via Twitter that it was ready to begin official direct peace talks with the Afghan government. The Trump administration has applied immense pressure to both the Afghan government and the Taliban to begin these talks immediately. Despite objections from U.S. allies to the transfer of these high-value prisoners accused of killing the foreign nationals, U.S. officials did not raise formal concerns. The six men who landed in Doha overnight are the last of thousands of Taliban inmates that have been released by the Afghan government in a prisoner swap process that was the central issue delaying peace talks. The U.S.-Taliban deal earlier in the year called for the Afghan government to release 5,000 Taliban fighters in exchange for 1,000 members of the Afghan security forces. The top American commander in the Middle East, General Frank McKinsey Jr., said earlier this week that troop levels in Afghanistan will drop to 4,500 by November. 
Number three, back to the United States. There's a moving tradition in Manhattan. Volunteers place white roses at the 9-11 memorial next to the names of people who died that day on their birthdays. This has continued through the pandemic, even though the museum has stayed closed. Michael Colerone, a Brooklyn-bred florist who goes by Mikey Flowers, has been doing this in a volunteer capacity for years. Mikey didn't come up with the idea for the birthday flowers. That was another volunteer, but he's the one who's made it happen, carefully selecting roses from the city's flower market and cleaning them and nursing them at his shop in Tribeca. He told our reporter, Jada Yuan, that he's not looking for the cheapest roses. He's looking for the best. He wants them to be the perfect white. Today, six names will be adorned with white roses. There are six people who died on their birthday. Amelia Fields, 46, had been working at the Pentagon for only two days when Flight 77 crashed into the military fortress outside Washington. Ivan Luis Carpio Batista, 24, a cook for Windows on the World, the restaurant on top of the World Trade Center, was supposed to have that day off, but he agreed at the last minute to sub in for a coworker. Anne-Marie Riccobini, 58, a Billings supervisor at a law firm, had just beaten breast cancer. Michael Berkeley, 38, had just founded his own brokerage firm. New York firefighter Lieutenant Vincent Francis Giamona, 40, last spoke to his wife while en route to the burning towers. And Michael Lafort, 39, a broker, never got to meet his third child. His son was born two months after 9-11, and his widow named him Michael Lafort Jr. Today, he is 18 years old. And that's The Daily 202 for Friday, September 11th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Homan. I'll talk to you on Monday. Tune in to the Optimistic Outlook podcast at Siemens.com slash optimist.